and welcome to Reliving My Youth, the show where I look back at pop culture from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. My name is Noel Fogelman, and today we're going to focus on something I absolutely adore, new wave music. And I recently had a chance to chat with Lori Majewski. Lori, along with her co-author Jonathan Bernstein, wrote Mad World. It's a book about new wave music, and they dealt with about, I'd say about 12 different artists, and they focused on one of their songs and they kind of gave the origin story of that song. They spoke with the artist, so the artists give the story of that particular song, what's going on with the band now. And if you like any of these artists, Tears for Fear is my favorite artist of all time, hence the name of the book Mad World. Thompson's Wins, The Mode, Duran Duran, Bow Wow Wow, Animotion, Adam Ant, Howard Jones. If you like at least two of those artists, you'll love the book. And even if you don't know much about new wave music, you will after this book. That's how good it is. I got a couple of my friends. I recommend it to them. They love the book. Lori currently co-hosts Feedback on Sirius XM's volume channel, channel 106 in the morning. If you like music, if you like talk radio, you'll love the channel. Here's my interview with Lori. And helping me relive my youth today is Lori Majewski. Lori is the co-author of one of the best books I read recently, Mad World as well as the co-host of Feedback on SiriusXM's volume. It's a great, great show with uh, Nick Carter, who is the co-host. Lori, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Before we really get started, I saw that uh, you went to see U2 a couple weeks ago. I think it was the same show I did. How was that? Oh, really? Was it the first night at MetLife Stadium? Yes, first night. Yes, Wednesday night. Um, What did you think? Well, that was the first time I've seen them before. Uh, really? Yeah, because they're a band where I want to hand them like a playlist and just play these songs. And once it was the Joshua Tree 30th anniversary, I'm like, thank you. And it was an unbelievable show. Well, talk about reliving my youth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went to see the Joshua Tree 87 tour probably at least a half a dozen times. Wow. <laughs> um, so for me, going back to see it again, I wanted to see how those songs had aged, and I was so pleasantly surprised. I I think the Joshua Tree, those songs are more relevant now than they've ever been. Um, it was interesting, though, to see a kinder, gentler Bono. Um you know, we live in a very divisive culture, and certainly in the 80s, there were plenty of people who were anti-Reagan, anti-Thatcher, but Bono really stopped short of going after Trump, who makes Reagan kind of look like a teddy bear, yeah. <laughs> and smart, and not having Alzheimer's. So it's very strange. Yeah, totally. And I, I found out that he developed a friendship with uh, George W. Bush. Yes, yeah, he had developed um, a friendship with him by, you know, hands across the aisle to say, I really need you to help me in Africa. We need to solve some of the problems there. I think it was AIDS-related. But, yeah, Africa has a lot of challenges. Or was it debt relief? may have been debt relief. Um, But George W. Bush, like, took him very seriously and... uh, accepted the meeting with him, and he came to learn a lot from Bono. And I I think that's what's kind of cool is that people say, oh, is this one George Clooney going to run for president or for um, senator? Is Bono going to run for office? They actually get more done wielding their influence as 
a celebrity. I think Donald Trump would attest to that as well. I don't think being president for him is all that it's cracked up to be. No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I mean, if thinking being president was like an easy job, I, I really thought he was completely overwhelmed and has been. But, you know, that's for another podcast, so to speak. Uh, that's for another podcast 30 years from now when we hopefully the planet's still around and we're reliving our youth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But yeah, and getting back to music, I mean, it. I've, again, I've seen you two on the Joshua Tree Tour 87 half a dozen times, but I've seen you two more times than I can count throughout my life. And... I dare say that was my favorite concert ever a few weeks ago at MetLife Stadium. Oh, wow. And, yeah, just all, like, coming out with, um, was it, I think, Sunday Body Sunday, and all this, all those songs right off the bat. The only problem I had was kind of ending on, like, a new song like that. I, I, I was Well, kind of... it really fit the trajectory of the concert. You know, when uh, Larry walked out, I have to say, when Larry walked out alone, no lights, no music. He just very briskly and unannounced walked to the center of the stage, the little Joshua Tree stage that was in the middle of the um, the crowd. When he started to beat the drums, those opening drums from um, drum beats from Sunday Bloody Sunday, I had chills. Right. I, turned to my husband and I burst into tears. Hmm. It did something. It brought me back to being 16 years old again and to remembering when you didn't have to worry about, you know, real life problems. You really just had to worry about your favorite bands. And I have to say, most of the concert, I stayed that age. I sang, I screamed, I danced, I cried. Um, and then you move after the Joshua Tree set, because it starts with a set of pre-Joshua Tree. Um, you have Sunday Bloody Sunday and Pride in the Name of Love and Bad, which is my all-time favorite U2 song. <laughs> right. And then it moves into the Joshua Tree in order. And then post-Joshua Tree, which is everything from One and Beautiful Day, um, Vertigo, and then they end, as you said, on a new song, which is from the forthcoming Songs of Experience album. And I think it was actually kind of smart because it really shows you that you two has a past, a present, and a future. A future. Um, a lot of bands from our youth basically go on all greatest hits tours. And I think that you two at first was afraid that they didn't want to look like a nostalgia act. So by giving you that third act, um, which is post-Joshua Tree leading up to a brand new song, it says, we're not done yet. There's still more ahead. And that's a perfect segue to your book, Mad World. Uh, how did you, well, my all-time favorite band is Tears for Fears. So that was. Oh, I love them too, and that's obviously the title of the book. Exactly, immediately drawn to the title of the book. Um, how did you decide on which um, performers you were going to interview and kind of delve into their songs? Well, it's interesting because when we first started, we were going to do an '80s pop book. We weren't going to do just um, new wave, and I actually did an interview with um, Night Ranger. Okay. It was around the time that the movie Rock of Ages came out, and it bombed. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately 
bombed. And I thought, you know, I know that people love those songs, like like Night Ranger, Sister Christian, and Journey. And but I felt like everyone we've done these to death. You know, I feel like what hadn't been done at that point was a real appraisal of the music that came post-punk and um, post-disco around the time that MCV was launched, the weird, wacky, wonderful, accidental world of New Wave. And, you know, my, my co-author, Jonathan Bernstein, and I uh, were best friends. We talk about New Wave on a daily basis and have been doing so since we met at Spin Magazine at the height of grunge right. back in 1991-1992. And we always felt that New Wave got the short shrift. We always felt that, that New Wave wasn't properly recognized because people think of it as a time of haircuts and <sighs> haircuts and makeup, men in makeup, women in drag, weird, you know, synthesizer. And when you think of grunge, they didn't use synthesizers. They were all about their guitars, just because the word synthesizer itself means synthesize, fake. Right. And we felt it was time that this era got proper due. And what's cool is, I think that's what we accomplished. Um, a number of these bands have gone back into the studio after our, our, after we've interviewed them, after our book came out. Tom Bailey actually went back um, after 30 years of not performing. He was the headliner on the Retro Futura tour last year. And look, I just saw um, Tears for Fears on stage um, a few weeks ago here at Flushing Meadows in, in New York um, oh. with, on tour with Paul and Oates this summer. Yeah, I was there. I feel like, in a way, we helped to initial, initialize, initialize, what am I saying the right word? Initiate. Yeah. <laughs> to help to initiate, if not contribute to, uh, giving credibility to this, this era. Yeah, and you guys certainly did a great job with that. Um, Thank you. And I, I feel like with, and I'll get back to the book for a sec, you brought up a good uh, point with New Wave kind of getting, you know, the shaft. And they certainly have gotten the shaft in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Because I feel like they, especially your favorite band, Duran Duran, they absolutely should be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, if they, they kind yeah. of... Yeah, you know, I, somebody tweeted me this morning about... They went to see Iron Maiden and Duran Duran over the weekend okay. <laughs> concert, and I went. Those two bands are so deserving of the Rock Hall. And and notice they're two very very different types of bands, but in general, metal bands and new wave bands have not been properly properly recognized. And there was an article in Billboard magazine about two or three years ago where um, they did like an expose of how does a band get nominated for and then inducted into the Rock Hall. And um, one of the quotes was, you know, as far as these bands from England, The Cure, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, um, they will never go into the Rock Hall because they're just weird British man bands that wear eyeliner. And, you know, that really annoyed me. Right. First of all, because David Bowie is the forerunner to all this, and he wore plenty of makeup. And then, um, and, and you know, he actually didn't even show up for his Rock Hall um, induction. He just felt... The, 
most unrock and roll thing is to have a rock and roll hall of fame. Right. And, you know, I can see his point. Um, but then, um, about that same year that that Billboard article ran, um, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails was nominated, and you can say right away that without the Pesh Mode, there is no Nine Inch Nails. And so I asked Martin Gore from Depeche Mode about this, and he said, well, you see, he wore less eyeliner than we did. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, you know, the good thing is a lot of these groups don't take it very seriously. Maybe in private, they sometimes, you know, wonder when their chance, their turn will come. But I know for a fact that the members of Depeche Mode, Duran Duran, The Cure, um, they've spent their lives being the alternative to the mainstream. So I don't think they feel like they're missing out because they're not in this rock hall of, let's face it, every year it's a, it's dwindling returns. The deities who are going in are, are, are not even deities anymore. Right. They're, you know, leftover leftover bits from prog rock era. Yeah, it's true. And I can throw like In Excess in there too, another band which I feel that is surely deserving of it. But I don't really think, you know, the honor will attract more fans or sell more well, records now, but it's just, I mean, it's just a nice little thing to have for them. Yeah, and they deserve it, because right. Duran Duran, you change what we think about when we think about music video and we think about style and substance. You know, there would be bands later that would be all style, um, but Duran Duran also fused musically fused a rock band with a modern synthesizer band. They're, they're a hybrid, unlike, you know, like a, a Human League, which is all synthesizers, or a Depeche Mode, which was in the beginning all synthesizers. You know, Duran Duran had one foot in the 70s and one foot in the 80s when they launched. You know, they are a four-on-the-floor rock band with drums, bass, you know, lead guitar, and, and you know, and then they also added that modern element, that futuristic sound, you know, at the at the beginning of the end, 80s, late 70s, which is the synthesizer. So they really, you know, I love them. And I think if they had been less good looking early on, um, we probably would have seen them in already. And, and as far as Depeche Mode goes, I mentioned it before when I, I said the thing about, the, about grunge, you know, Grunge was the anti-80s, and grunge was the anti-synthesizer. They were like, look, we're going back to Neanderthal days where we just, like, strum a guitar, you know, don't wash our hair, and bang on drums like cavemen. And in doing so, they, you know, made people forever and ever not want to put a band like Duran Duran into the, the, the rock hall. But things are changing, and, and I think people of my age group are now coming into more into power. So I do think they will eventually make it, and Depeche will make it, and The Cure will make it. Yeah, and hopefully uh, in, ex- in excess. And I don't expect Tears for Fears, my favorite band, to make it, but uh, I don't think they released in enough ex- music. Their, their career was cut short. I mean, they were on the wane as it was by the time Michael had died. But what happens is when a band like that leaves the spotlight for so long, we forget how, how important they were. Um, uh, Thompson Twins are the same way. Right. Like, they just, they were really big at the time. Madison Square Garden style, huge bands. But then, you know, Thompson Twins break up. 
Tears for Fears breaks up at the height of their fame. Yes. Tears for Fears could have been the biggest band in the world. They certainly were for a moment. And yet, as I have it in my Mad World book, uh, you know, they're on their way to, I think it's Nebworth, their biggest concert ever, in a helicopter, and Kurt Smith turns to Roland Osbourne and says, um, I want to quit this band at the end of the tour. He should have done it at the end of the tour because right. it's made for a very uncomfortable, awkward friendship, relationship, strained relationship for the whole of the tour. But that's crazy. They broke up at the height of their fame. Otherwise, I think they may have given us a lot more music-wise, that could have set them up for something like the rock hall. But as it is, they went away for so long that when they came back, I think we thought of them as a nostalgia act and not as a contemporary band. Yeah, and it's it's funny now because it's been, I think, 13 years since they released their last their last album, which was, was really good. But And I think that's like their longest you know break between albums, and, and they're actually back together now. Which is, it's kind of funny. I know. Did you hear my interview with Kurt Smith on our feedback series XM volume? Oh, no. Yeah, it's on demand. Okay, I'll definitely check that out. But I asked him about that. I asked Kurt Smith about that. And, you know, he laughed. He's like, Lori, we haven't been working on the album for all 13 years. I'm like, okay, but can you get it out already? We want to hear this new music. Exactly. You know, stop being on psych, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, music changes over the course of 13 years. Do you think you really still love what you created 13 years ago? Yeah. Music's of the moment. You need to get it out there. Right, and it's really funny because I've seen Tears for Fears. I've seen them, like, a bunch of times. I've seen them, like, without Kurt, with Kurt. And now that Kurt's back, they actually play some of the songs that Roland created without Kurt. And I find that kind of yeah, interesting. Yeah, they do. You know, they break it down again, and a couple from, you know, their um, Raul album. Uh, now, just back to the, the book for a second. Did any, like, story by an artist, like, really, really surprise you? Um, let me think for a second. I think one of the earliest interviews I did, um, there was a line that surprised the heck out of me. Um, I was talking to Peter Hook of Joy Division and New Order about um, the acrimonious relationship between him and Bernard Sumner. Right. And I basically said, you know, how, this has been going on for a while now, but when can you trace it back to? And he said, well, to be honest, we were never friends. He said, you know, we've been in these two iconic, game-changing bands, since we're teenagers, but the truth of the matter is we've never even shared a phone call except for one time when Bernard called me because his car broke down and he needed a lift to a gig. (laughs) And I was like, you're telling me in over 35 years you have shared one phone call? And he's like, yep. And that really surprised me because you hear about bands that don't get along or they don't like each other, but the fact and, and yes, they hate each other now. Um, but the fact that they never really liked each other to the point that they never even ha- called each other on the phone, even in their formative years, to me, that was a very interesting quote. And um, he also, you know, he also said that um, he also said that that they that's what made their music so interesting was that tension, that fire between them. And 
Bernard eventually didn't like it. I mean, I interviewed Bernard Sumner a couple years ago now, two years ago maybe, and I it was when he, they put out their last New Order record, um, Music Complete, was it? And I, I said, I, I talked to him about that, and he said, well, look, he goes, yes, you know, it sounds good in theory that there's this fire intention, but you have to go to the studio every day. You have to see this person every day. You know, it wears you down. And, and he's like, you know, at one point do you choose music, and at what point do you choose a happy life? They weren't. He was no longer happy being in the same room with Peter Hook, and Peter Hook the same way. But I think Peter Hook was more willing to swallow it for the sake of music, and Bernard was not. Wow, that's that's amazing. That's sad too, isn't it? Yeah, what what story? I kind of was kind of a sad story. It was the story of an emotion I felt. It was. So tell me what you like, but it's interesting because that is the swan song. You know, it's, it's the only other the only other chapter that comes late in the book is the Band Aid Live Aid chapter, which we think is the end of the era. But mm-hmm. musically, we saw the era really ending with bands like Animotion. Yeah, and it was just like how they were kind of, they weren't like, they didn't really want to, or the record companies, have them create their own music. It was just basically play this song, with, you know, and it was Michael Desbaris, I think, wrote, wrote um, Obsession, correct? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just felt like, you know, they just didn't really get their, their due of that song, and then they kicked out, um, I forgot her name now. Um, Astrid. Yeah, Astrid, and then Cynthia Rose, Rose came in, and they continued the band. I just felt that, you know, it would have been nice just to see what else that band would have had to offer, because uh, well, Obsession was such a good song. it's not any criticism. People would be like, why is animation and uh, animation in this book? And one of the reasons is we, we were telling a story of the beginning, middle, and end of the new wave era, coming out of punk and glam, coming out of the disco 70s, and how it ended, we thought, with Band-Aid and Live-Aid when the party was over, the new wave party was over, it was time to take off the makeup, it was time to get serious, it was time to save the world. I mean, literally, at Live-Aid, you can see, you know, Duran Duran passing the torch to you 2 And the second half of the 80s, you know, becomes, yes, about corporate greed, which is what the Animotion story is about, and it also becomes about, you know, Live Aid, Band Aid, Farm Aid, every other kind of aid. I went to Drive Aid, (laughs) all sorts of things, right? Because there was this sense that music had gotten more serious. That's why, you know, Depeche Mode gets darker, The Cure gets darker. Those Those bands were selling out stadiums by the end of the 80s, R.E.M., Um, But getting back to Animotion, they were a victim of coming at the wrong time in the era. So Adamant comes at the beginning. No one would dream of telling him to wear a white stripe across his face and, um, you know, you're going to write a song comparing the plight of you as a white man to a Native American. Like, he was his own wild and weird creation. Um, by the time you get five or six years later to Animotion, MTV is now up and running 
it's making a ton of money. Labels see that if they get videos on MTV, they can sell a lot of records. They didn't find Astrid to be a very, um, she wasn't a game player. They wanted to write their own music. Um, Bill from Animotion as well. They were all confused. They're like, wait, we, we write our own music. Why are you, it's one thing to give us one song, Animotion's Obsession by Michael Daybar, um, to cover, but you want us to do that. We want us to record everyone else's songs and not write our own. And then they fire Astrid. They didn't find her particularly attractive, which didn't work in this new MTV era. Um, and it was also incredibly sexist, by the way. So that's a really sad story. The beginning of the, the book is all how almost A&R turned their backs and, and no one policed this time when Annie Lennox decides that she's going to, like, Cut, get a crew cut and dye her hair red and like wear a man's suit and boy George is going to be like a Hasidic washerwoman. It was all <laughs> out of control and fun. You know, by the time you get to Animotion, it was a, a story of corporate greed. And I don't know if we ever really recovered from that. There was a brief moment in grunge again where things seemed to be authentic. Um, but you know, even that push and pull, I want to be famous, I don't want to be famous, is ultimately what killed Kurt Cobain. So Animotion is actually an important chapter because it shows you um, how music changed. Well, yeah, it, it's definitely, definitely did. So what are some of like, your favorite like band, like current bands now? My favorite current bands? Well, I guess they're not that current, but I'm happy that the Killers are back. Right, yeah. um, I love this new Lord record. I think that it's beginning to end a masterpiece, and she is a critic's darling. I don't think she gets the mainstream love that she should. Um, if I were 16 years old today, Lord would be my Kate Bush. Right. I love her. Um, I love the Harry Styles record. I think that's one of my favorite records of the year, by the way. Right up there with the new Amy Mann record. Um, I love the Harry Styles record. Um, Dream Car, uh, which talk about reliving your youth. That's what Dream Car is doing, is they're reliving their youth by basically putting out a new wave album in 2017. It's the um, three remaining members of, surviving members, I should say, because Gwen left them in the dust, of no doubt, right. with Davy Havoc of AFI. And I'd say those are my favorite favorite albums of the year so far. Okay, now you mentioned Amy Mann, because I, I used to love Michael Penn, and I still do listen to his music. I heard he's a little bit of an interesting character. <laughs> yeah, he. I just saw Amy Mann at the Music Hall of Williamsburg a few weeks ago, and he was not with her. I was kind of disappointed. Um, I've seen her perform on her tours before. Okay. He's really good. Yeah, he, he uh, way back when talking about reliving my youth, he opened up for Tears for Fears uh, at Jones Beach in 1990. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. He, um, he's been the music supervisor for girls and I think a couple of other shows, so I know he's been really busy. Oh, okay. That's great. Well, I really appreciate you helping me relive my youth, say, and catch Laurie. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for letting me relive my youth as well. I feel like I do that every single day of my life, though, to be honest. I don't think I've ever come, like, to 2017. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not there either. But you can catch Lori's wonderful show, Feedback, on SiriusXM Volume, Channel 106. And if you haven't read the book, 
please read Mad World. It's a fabulous book. And uh, thank you so much today. Oh, thank you so much. A special thanks to Lori Majewski for helping me relive my youth today. Follow Lori on Twitter, at Lori Majewski. Read Mad World. It's an absolutely fantastic book. I can't stress that enough. Listen to Lori every weekday morning on SiriusXM's volume channel 106. Her show is called Feedback. If you guys have Facebook, be sure to like the page we're living my youth. Follow me on Twitter at the first Noel 19 Sometimes I have things, you know, funny things to say. Uh, special thanks to everyone who listens to the show, and see you next time.